Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the 1987 National League MVP and Hall of Famer, The Hawk, Andre Dawson. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by the 1977 National League Rookie of the Year. He's also the 87 Most Valuable Player. He was an eight-time All-Star, was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2010. Ladies and gentlemen, the Hawk, Andre Dawson. Andre, thanks for coming on the program. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Booney. Olympic Stadium. How bad was the turf, Dre? <laughs> I played on it. Only place I ever sprained my ankle, Olympic Stadium. Early, eh, mid-90s. Uh, well, it wasn't the best playing surface, let me just say that. I played on it for 10 years, and I think it only got replaced once. And it got as bad as, you know, the seams coming apart. Uh, you had to uh, really be a little particular about uh, how you ran out there on it. Uh, it was just, you know, uh, the surface at that particular time that was installed as a multi-purpose uh, for uh, different sports uh, around the country in different ballparks. And I guess the good, the good thing is that they did make improvements with it uh, as time passed, but ultimately just getting rid of it altogether. I mean, it's amazing nowadays that the surfaces the guys play on, and they're all state-of-the-art. And ba- actually, back then, the AstroTurf, you know, and it was in Philly, and it was in Pittsburgh, and it was in St. Louis. Uh, that was state-of-the-art then, but but we didn't know how much nicer it is now. I've, I've had a few football uh, football players on the program, and I said, you know, us as baseball players, especially when you're young, you didn't notice the turf too much. I remember uh, – my partner in, in the middle, Barry Larkin, he was an older, you know, he was four or five years older than me. And, and we played together in Cincinnati and I'd see him every day after the game and he'd have ice on his knees. Well, I'm 23 years old. I'm looking at him like, yeah, old man, what's going on? He said, you play on this turf for a while. We'll see how your knees feel. Well, fast forward <laughs> eight or nine years. And now I knew what he was talking about. You know, I remember as a kid coming up, because you played, you were playing against dad. I played against you a little bit at the end of your career. I was just getting started. But I remember my childhood watching Andre Dawson in the turf and watching you, and, and I knew your knees. And I'm going, man, that turf looks rough. And then I got to play on it, you know, throughout the course of my career. And I, we can all kind of empathize with each other. We went through it at different times, but... uh that was then, and man, the surface is now uh, probably extending guys' careers a little bit. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of state-of-the-art today. It's almost like playing on a natural playing surface. And I really didn't know the impact, uh, just how bad that stuff was until I got to play in Chicago uh, after 10 years in Montreal on that natural playing surface. And it was just like night and day. 
And I can recall Don Zimmer would give me days off where he would let me know ahead of time when we would go on the road uh, and have to play uh, a series on an AstroTurf. He would let me know ahead of time, okay, I'm going to probably give you a Sunday off if it was a, a, a Friday start of a series. And right about, uh, you know, day three, I could really notice the impact that I didn't notice all those years playing in Montreal, just how achy and how sore I was. But it, it, it took its toll. You know, I had, I had 12 different knee procedures during the course of my career. I've had three knee replacements up to this point. Got to do a hip and it's starting to affect my back. So I look at these guys today and I just, you know, I, I tell them, you know, you don't want to play the game. Uh, with longevity in mind, make your money, make as much as you can and get out because uh, when you get a little bit older, uh, your body's going to tell you some things. You grew up in South Miami. What was Andre Dawson like as a little kid? Uh, I loved the game of baseball uh, for starts. I was introduced to the sport by an uncle of mine who ran a parks and recreation department and he got me started and it was the only thing I really ever wanted to do. I was the oldest of eight siblings and I had a huge responsibility of all those that were behind me. But uh, baseball was first and foremost. I tried to indulge in it as much as possible and I was able to play every year as a kid starting from the age eight or nine going forward. I, I look back at uh, my childhood and growing up in, in South Florida, you know, I was, I was a very humble kid and didn't get into any trouble. I, I couldn't afford to get into any trouble, any trouble because of the consequences. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just, I tried to, um, surround myself with people who, uh, were motivational, uh, inspiring, um, role models who would encourage me and set me on that path. Uh, to uh, fulfill a childhood dream. And uh, that's basically, you know, uh, what I tried to do as a kid growing up and pattern myself after those who I felt were my idols. You went to uh, Southwest Miami Senior High School, I believe is the name of it. Uh, You're a football player too. Yeah, I played football. I, I really played it just to pass the time to get to baseball season and because uh, most of my close friends were playing football. Uh, but I um, I really didn't care for the sport other than that. I, I did want to be a quarterback, but I didn't think I would get a fair shot. And I uh, felt that, you know, I had speed. Um, I had some quickness about me. So if I wasn't going to be a wide receiver, defensive was the next thing that sort of stood out to me, but I was decent. I was decent as a football player, but uh, baseball was always just the, the sport of choice. Yeah, I think back to, to my childhood, I was the same way. I mean, I loved the sports, and it was different back then. You know, it was, you were able to play uh, seasonal sports. Today, it gets a little complicated with the parents and the travel ball. They want their kids to just, you know uh, – <laughs> play one sport year round I laugh you know when you've gone through what we've gone through and and played the game at a high level to see these kids and and to be put in that 
that predicament of pick one sport and play it. You know, I, I'm always, I was thinking to myself, no, you want these kids to have good child childhood memories that they look back on and smile. Not that they were kind of forced or, you know, they, it's just, it seems like there's too much pressure. Like little Johnny's going to play baseball year round and he's going to be a big legger when really you want to pull him aside and go little Johnny's got zero to little to zero chance of ever playing there. So why don't you let him, let him enjoy his childhood with his buddies. So one day he looks back, yeah. Hey, somebody's got to make it. I'm not saying don't yeah. follow your dreams, follow your dreams, but be a kid. <laughs> exactly. And I tell parents all the time, don't, you know, don't live your fantasies through the kids. Uh, you don't want to burn them out. Uh, let them play every sport that they possibly can to learn, uh, you know, the, the, the different aspects of, of different sports and to learn what it is to, uh, be uh, and and learn sportsmanship, and to interact with different different kids uh, in the different sports. But yeah, it's I, I think it's it's a parent thing. They see a little ability in the kid, and they start having these uh, self fantasies about what they want to do, and the kids wind up getting burnt out by trying to play the sport year round. You mentioned your uncle early, and he he was a, a big influence in your life. Your grandmother also would. You had seven siblings. Um, but it was interesting to me. I was reading, you know, I figured your nickname came, but, you know, we had your uh, one of your one of your close teammates on the show re- recently, Tim Raines. And I always just assumed, you know, Rock, the Rock Raines. And I always assumed the Hawk, ah, somebody in the big league gave him the nickname, but it came from your uncle when you were a kid. Yes, he came from a different uncle. Uh, oh, a different uncle than you was, than you even mentioned. Okay, right. Yeah, it was a different uncle, and it was a men's uh, travel baseball team. And as a kid, I would sit back and watch them practice. And at the end of practice, uh, this particular uncle would call me out. He was the one that would throw me batting practice because he was a pitcher. And then I'd go out, I may uh, shag some some uh, balls in the outfield while they were practicing, uh, of course, being protected while I was out there. And then I would go to third base and shortstop, and they would hit me fungos. And he said if a ball took, you know, a bad hop uh, and it ricocheted off my body, I would pounce on it. He said, he, you really don't see that. Uh, and a kid your age, he said, because a lot of them are afraid of the ball. They said, but you pounced on it, and that reminds me of a hawk. And he just started calling me hawk, and for whatever reason, I uh, just stuck all those years. My family nickname was Pudgy. I, I don't really know why, because I was never really a fat kid. But I went through, you know, all of this time being, you know, called a hawk by just a certain number of my friends. And the players uh, that I played against and with uh, thought that it was because of that uh, intense focus and that scowl that I had. Uh, But that was my form of uh, concentration. And uh, for whatever reason, again, it just stuck all those years. And, you know, I, again, I just, uh, I I, I clamored I liked the Hawk a little bit better than I did Pudgy. Uh, you went to Florida A&M and uh, played there for three years. What position uh, did you play as a kid, high school and college? Was it always the outfield or did you play infield at all? 
I played third base. I didn't really play the outfield until I played third base, shortstop, and I pitched. Uh, and in my senior year in high school, I got moved to uh, the outfield. Uh, coach said my arm was too strong from shortstop. He said I was handcuffing uh, the middle infielders uh, if I played third and if I played short. He said I was handcuffing the infielders. So he moved me to the outfield. It didn't make sense to me, but I think he had some uh, younger players that he also wanted to guy and fit into the starting lineup and give them a chance to play. And when I went to college, I started out as a center fielder. Again, I got moved to shortstop to press a freshman player uh, my sophomore year and then moved back to the outfield. But I always felt comfortable uh, in the outfield once I made the transition out there because it gave me room uh, to roam around. I hurt my arm in college when I went back to the shortstop position. So it took some time uh, playing uh, the rest of my college career, uh, a couple of years in the minor leagues before I really developed my arm strength. I got my arm strength back. But I, I like the aspect, uh, the fact that I was a center fielder, able to, to roam around a little bit more. And then when I moved to right field, that was a little bit more challenging. But, uh, you know, I was happy. I was happy that, uh, I did get to um, play both of those positions uh, because it challenged me uh, differently from being out in center field as opposed to being in right field. 1975, uh, you're drafted in the 11th round by the Montreal Expos. Uh, you sign, you go off to the minor. You weren't in the minor leagues that long. 76, you get a cup of coffee. Uh, you get 24, 24 ABs. But my, I was wondering, you, you grew up in South Miami, and now all of a sudden you're in Montreal, Canada. And that's, it's a different, it's different. <laughs> it's different, believe me, from a, from a, uh, an opponent for years and years coming in as a visitor. I enjoyed my time in Montreal, but it's, but it's different. How was that transition for you? Um, and how'd you enjoy it? How'd you enjoy the cold? Did you speak French? A little bit different of a culture shock. Uh, as you mentioned, growing up in South Florida, Miami, uh, I was always used to uh, extreme warm temperatures. Uh, but you go across the border and you see pretty much snow for the first time, and then you got to adjust to the frigid temperatures. Uh, that took some getting used to. I, I felt that, you know, it was all uh, brand new and exciting for me. Uh, even, you know, with the AstroTurf and uh, the Major League ballparks. But it did take some, some getting used to. I got my feet underneath me, and I just, you know, tried to make uh, the transition from minor league baseball to the big leagues and what it takes to play and stay at that level. And I really enjoyed playing uh, in Canada for the most part. It was uh, – I, I was – say uh, a hockey town in a sense uh, they were learning the game of baseball but they came out they supported us real well and the fact that I was able to play there for for 10 years um, you know I just uh, I enjoyed it I tried to make the most of it but it was a huge huge difference once I uh, left Canada went to the states and was able to play on natural playing surface.
You know what I remember most about Montreal? It was when we come in to play the Expos, the better we did, the more customs we had to go through. And I'll, I remember times going to Montreal, you guys, you know, we get swept or lose three out of four. And man, they'd take us, they'd be, the customs officers would be smiling at us, take us right to the plane. But if we beat you guys three out of four or, or, or swept you, it was going to be a long night. And we knew it. Those were, those were my memories of Montreal. But you started at Jerry Park, if I'm not mistaken. That, were you, did you get to the big leagues in 76 and they were still playing in Jerry Park? Because that was the Olympic year. Yeah, so I got called up. I uh, spent the last month of the season in Jarrett Park. And uh, that was different. That was more of a minor league ballpark feel. Um, and I can recall I, I got there in September, played that final month. And it was uh, Olympic Stadium, my own two Olympic Stadium the following season. Uh, but but Jared Park, yeah, Jared Park just had a whole entirely different feel about it. You know, I remember as a kid, and uh, when when my dad was playing for the Phillies, I remember in the late seventies, you guys were good, and that's when Steve Rogers was your ace. And I remember coming to Montreal for a key game. This is back. Uh, for those of you listening out there uh, to the Boone podcast, this is back in the days where only two teams from each league went to the playoffs. So those that East rivalry, the it was the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Phillies and the Expos in the late 70s. You guys started to, to make a challenge for that. And I remember coming up for a key game late in the season. And this is when... I don't think there was a roof on it because I remember it was the coldest I'd ever been during a game. Dad, I, I think I got to sit in the dugout for the game. And I remember being so cold, you know, as a player. Now, the first time I got uh, a chance to play there was 1993 and the roof was closed full time at that time. But but in the late 70s, I remember that roof being open. And man, you talk about the adjustment for for that cold weather. I remember that. I think it was Steve Rogers against Steve Carlton. Late 70s game, it, it was a difference maker, I think, in the pennant race. But that's what I remember, early memories of Olympic Stadium. Yeah, probably when uh, we lost to the Phillies and they went on to the World Series. Uh, I played mean, there and the roof wasn't really put on until the year that I left. So I experienced that on, on uh, over the course of a 10-year period. And it was it was cold. It was damp, and it felt like you were um, just uh, in a cave in a sense. But it had an opening in it, and uh, it, it was uh, it wasn't the best of conditions. Let me just say that in, in early April uh, and, and on into September. So it, you can get to some frigid temperatures and just make it seem like you know oh well. You know, this is what it is to play across the border. But I will say this. I played in, in in three of the coldest places you can possibly play in April. That's Boston, that's Montreal, and that's Chicago. Oh, Chicago, when that wind starts kicking on the wrong day. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel you on that one. Um, you came up, and I, and I think Charlie Fox was your first manager. Then Dick Williams took over the ball club in 77. That was your, your rookie of the year. You hit 282, 19. You stole 21 bases. 
Um, and that was kind of your, I don't know. We all have times, you know, we, we fight through the minor leagues and we get to the big leagues. And, and when people ask me, I said, yeah, all you want to do when you're going from the minor leagues to the big leagues, you just want to prove to your teammates and, and the league that you belong here and you can play. Uh, you want to establish yourself. And, and sometimes it takes a few years. Sometimes it's, you know, not too often is it instantaneous for you. You win rookie of the year. Um, did that settle you in after that 77 season? Well, I will say this. I didn't really get out of the gates um, like I would have normally wanted to. I was being platooned with uh veteran left-handed hitter, Dale Hunter, uh, to be exact. So it was tough for me to get any kind of rhythm or get comfortable uh, starting out in uh, the cold weather. And I would go maybe one for four, uh, something like that. I really wasn't hitting for a high average. I wasn't getting on base a lot. And there were rumors that I I was going to be sent back to the minor leagues. I, I didn't have anything, I think, to prove in the minor leagues because I went through the minor league system so fast. But there was talk about me going back to play every day as opposed to being platooned and playing maybe a couple times a week. And I finally got to start against a right-handed pitcher in Atlanta, Buzz Capra. I hit my first major league home run. And they started me uh, the next day against another right-handed. I got a couple of hits. And for whatever reason, I started playing on an everyday basis. And as you mentioned, I was able to go ahead and uh, get settled in, uh, win the uh, Rookie of the Year award, barely beating out Steve Henderson, uh, who was a Met rookie and had a fine year by his own right. But uh, I think that kind of, as I say, settled me in and I got my feet underneath me. And from there, my my main focus was this, you know, this is the big leagues. You just, you know, got to really try to stay as consistent as possible. Uh, work hard, diligently day in and day out. Stay on top of the game if you really want to stay here. So that was my mindset going forward. The guys on those teams, I remember Steve Rogers, who I mentioned, Gary Carter, uh, Ellis Valentine, Warren Crow, Marty, uh, Doggy, Tony Perez. Did you have somebody when you got to the big leagues that kind of took took you under their wing? Well, my my rookie year, I will say this: Tony Perez came over, and I was number twenty four. <laughs> they gave me number twenty four. I wanted number eight, but Gary Carter was there the year before me. He wore number eight. So they gave me 24, and now Tony Perez is a member of the Expos. And uh, it was a no-brainer for me to give him the number 24. And we kind of hit it off. And I I asked a lot of questions of him. You know, he was a veteran presence, uh, not only a player, but in the clubhouse. And uh, we would have sit-arounds after the game. We would talk the game, uh, the adjustments that uh, need to be made going forward, mistakes that uh, were made and not to be repeated. So this is how we conducted ourselves at the end of the game, and uh, Tony was always right in the middle of that. So I would say initially uh, he would be that one guy as a result of him leaving uh, the following year, we bring in uh, Pete Rose, then we bring in Al Oliver, and you're talking about 
uh, consummate professionals. Uh, so I was able to surround myself with, I think, people who were key to my development uh, going forward. And I always uh, directed whatever I needed to about the game itself uh, to those individuals because I knew, uh, you know, I would get honest, uh, honest efforts and guidance going forward. Yeah, Tony. Tony was one of my uh, one of my favorite guys, or is. Um, I, I got to know Tony. You know, just when I played for the Reds, I played there. I was there for five years, and just just alumni from from past. You know, the big red machine would come to town. That's when I got to to meet Tony and kind of talk with him. And to this day, still one of my favorite guys. You know, he puts it somehow when I see him, he just, he, he has a way of putting a smile on your face, you know, the, the only the way he can, but uh, yeah, it, it makes sense that Tony would, would reach out and be a little bit of a mentor toward you. 78 and 79, you had 25 homers both years, uh, stealing 28, 28 bags and 35 and 1980, um, uh, you win your first Gold Glove, Silver Slugger, um, and you're kind of you're kind of rolling. I mean, what what's it like now in Montreal? How was it playing there? Because I'll tell you, there were some lean years when I played '94 when the strike hit. Uh, that was a great team, and all of a sudden they canceled the World Series, and it seemed like after that when we come back to montreal they it's like it it lost its luster and, and the fans kind of were really put off by that yeah it was great uh during my uh stint especially early on uh because we won the fan base we had some young talent that was developed through the minor league system it was tough to get a quality free agent uh, to want to come across the border and play we would get players uh, through trades but i always felt we were that one uh two marquee free agents away from being where we wanted to be and that was reaching postseason play but we had a lot of factors or other factors uh that needed to be met also but the fan base uh once we won them over they came out uh they would support us real well but i think the fact that they were able to really develop a lot of young, fine talent through the years. It kept them competitive, but not competitive enough to, to get the postseason play. During that strike year, they probably actually had the best team in baseball. And it's unfortunate that they um, had to incur the strike, but uh, I think you would have seen from that particular squad uh some some real real good quality baseball going forward if we didn't have the strike yeah it seemed like it hit montreal in particular you know i think it it hurt you know baseball as a whole and and i remember coming back in 95 and and you know there were some fans that really distanced them distanced themselves from the game for a while uh you know it took three or four years to get the game back to to i think where it was pre-strike but it seemed like montreal never got it back after that year because i remember that team and playing against it they were a really good team uh and it seemed like every time after that we'd go to montreal there'd be six thousand people and i'd hear those stupid horns from the raptors uh blowing <laughs> down on me <laughs> you know you could hear a pit it was like kind of going to to uh 
when the Marlins first started at old Joe Robbie, some days you'd go there, there'd be 5,000 fans there. And it seemed like Montreal never yeah. just got that back. I wonder if one day it'd be possible. Do you think, do you think Montreal would be able to, to house a major league baseball team again, or do you think that's kind of done and gone? I don't really see it happening. I, you know, that's just my opinion. Uh, so much, you know, so much red tape involved. They need a new ballpark for one. And there was a lot of speculation about uh, where they would build a new playing facility. I do foresee Canada having two teams as opposed to one. But uh, Montreal, uh, again, uh, will it work? I think it will. I think the fans are starved for baseball, and they would like to see it return. But uh, if it's going to actually happen, it's, you know, to me, it's it's not, you know, in, in, the, in the realm of not happening. But I just, uh, I just don't see it. I, I can honestly say I would like to see it return, but, uh, at this particular point in time, I really don't see it. Uh, over the next six years, you won six gold gloves, uh, three silver sluggers, and, and uh, you were an all-star again in 83. Um, get to 1986 and uh, get 284, 20, 78. You've been an MVP-type player for years now in Montreal. You're a free agent. And that was when the collusion crept into the game, 1986. Uh, I want to hear your version, how you got to the Cubs from Montreal. (laughs) (laughs) The blank contract, Dallas Green. I could probably write a a book about that. I um, I tell you, Boney, that for the very first time, I I had leverage and – I, you know, I, I thought actually that I would wear one uniform. That's what I wanted to do, wear one uniform the entirety of my career. But it was it was an eye-opening experience for me, uh, that whole final year, uh, being mentioned in trade rumors, um, uh, not, you know, really uh, sitting down to the table, negotiating an extension going forward. I was just... I was just a free agent that I, I was going to be out there in limbo uh, by the end of the season. And I can recall we sat down, uh, my agent, uh, the owner, we wanted to meet with the owner as opposed to the general managers the last day of the season, uh, right after we played the final game. And it didn't really go over uh, the way we thought it would. We just, you know, left the meeting uh, with the idea of, okay, maybe we'll get something done in the off season, they made an offer to me. I think it was an offer for me to uh, actually refuse. And my agent said that it was unacceptable. Well, at that particular point, I wasn't even aware of what collusion was. And it didn't really uh, stare me into the face until the off season when I didn't hear from the ball club for a couple of months. And finally, after the holidays, I get to sit down with the team president, they made me an offer that called for a $200,000 cut in pay as a free agent. And I told them, well, you know, that, that was unacceptable uh, primarily because it was still on the AstroTurf and the fact that that wasn't fair market value. So I left that meeting uh, and I thanked the president. I said, this 
you know, it's not going to work uh, for obvious reasons. But I appreciate the fact that the the Expos organization gave me, you know, a, a, a ten year major league career, and I left West Palm Beach, uh, and I went home, and I didn't know what was going to happen from that point. I sat down with my wife and I made a comment. I said, well, maybe I'll go to Japan. And she said, the Japan. I said, yes. She said, well, I'll see you when you get back. <laughs> so that wasn't, that wasn't going to work. So my agent uh, who was Richard Moss at the time, uh, he called me and he wanted me to fly to Arizona and uh, meet with him. And he had an idea, but he wanted to make sure that I was on board with it. And we discussed the fact that, uh, well, no one was going to sit down and negotiate with me. And uh, I was adamant about the fact that under no circumstances were I going to go back to Montreal. And uh, he said, well, this is, you know, if you let me, let me know if this makes any sense to you, we'll go to Chicago and we'll give them a blank contract. I know you like you like the city of Chicago, you like daytime baseball, uh, you like Wrigley Field, and you like the fan base. I said, yeah, I've always uh, been admirers of their fans. They don't boo their ball players. They come out, they support them. And it's just a different environment altogether. And he said, well, we'll we'll go to Arizona. They were already in spring training. And he said, uh, we'll meet with Dallas. Uh, we're, we're, we're going out unannounced. So there might be... Um, a circus once we get there, but, you know, just, uh, be mindful of that. You know, don't think anything of it because they don't know that we're coming. And that's what happened. We went out uh, the next day. Uh, we, we were standing outside the training facility and we requested a meeting with Dallas green. Um, he, uh, obliged and we went in and we met with him. Now the media wants to know what's going on because, I'm unsigned and I'm out in Arizona at Cubs uh, camp. And it was pretty uh, quiet uh, in that regard. I was, it kept, they kept it hush hush. They didn't uh, reveal anything about the meeting itself, but they knew that uh, we had gone in the meeting. During that meeting, I said to Dallas Green, I said, Mr. Green, I said, uh, we're here today to present uh, proposal to the club who said, we're not here to negotiate with you. Uh, but here's a blank contract. And I just want you to fill in the blanks, whatever you think I'm worth, I'll be willing to play for it. And he had never seen anything like it. He couldn't make wind of it. And he went on to say to me that he had some young players that needed to be given a look and, and given an opportunity to play. And I said, uh, that's uh, fine. That's well. That's well and fine, but you still have the nucleus intact of the team that wanted in '84. I said, I think that I can help you. And then I said, I'm only going to leave it on the table for 24 hours. I'm going to fly back home to Florida tomorrow, and I'm today. I said, I'm later that day, and tomorrow I'm going to go to West Palm Beach and I'm going to present the same proposal to the Atlanta Braves. And he said, okay, he said, I'll let my legal people look it over and I'll try and get back to you as soon as possible. Well, as I was about to drive to West Palm Beach to meet with the Braves, I got a phone call at home and it was Dallas Green. And he said, 
He said, Mr. Dawson, he said, we looked over the contract. There was nothing really to look over because he didn't have any numbers. And he said, the best offer we can make is $500,000, which was 500000 less than what Montreal was offered. And I knew one of the worst case scenarios I could have gone back to Montreal and played for the $1 million. Uh, but I had made up my mind uh, I was going to move on. And I made the comment to Mr. Green. I said, that's, that's fine. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'll accept it. And he got quiet. I didn't hear anything for about 15 seconds. I thought I lost a call. And I said, hello. He said, I'm here. He said, can I call you back in about an hour? And at that point, I knew uh, what he had to do because he wasn't supposed to make me an offer. I think he actually made it for me to refuse. And uh, sure enough, he called back uh, after, I guess, speaking with uh, someone from the commissioner's office. And he said, Andre said, um, uh, welcome aboard. We're glad to have you. I know you was just here. Take your time getting back out. But I was out. I went back out the next day because they had already started playing spring training games. So that's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I got to Chicago. And a pretty good entrance. <laughs> you win your MVP, <laughs> 49 homers. You lead the league at homers and RBIs. And uh, the city of Chicago, uh, they loved you. They loved the Hawk. I mean, best year of your career, all-star, gold glove, silver slugger, MVP. And I'm always interested when I have guys on that, especially you were kind of the, at the beginning when that home run derby started, <clears throat> I participated in two. I wasn't very good at it. I'll be honest with you. I think the, the way they have it situated nowadays from an entertainment value for the fans, I think they got the formula right. And it's kind of fun for the fans to watch when I did it. It was, it was different, but they were still f- trying to figure it out. I want to hear you were one of the, one of the originals. So I want to know what your yeah, experience I, I, was I like, think, I, I like I, in that 87 Derby. I, yeah, I think I, that was either three or three or four of the Derby. And at that uh, point in time, you, you only got 10 outs over one round. Uh, and it was tallied uh, the number of home runs that you would hit before you reached 10 outs. And today, uh, home run Derby, I like – the format, I just don't like the fact that a guy can hit 85 home runs and lose the derby uh, because a guy that hit uh, maybe 20 less beat him in the final round of the derby. Uh, this particular this particular year was, I think, fun and entertaining in that regard. Uh, but I just I think it needs to be tinkered with a little bit more. It's, it's a lot more fun than the game itself. It's made for television. Uh, but, you know, if a guy hits, uh, averages 25 home runs for three rounds, uh, and then he's gassed out, you know, and doesn't have anything left for the finals, uh, to me, you know, that's that's kind of punishment as opposed to uh, really uh, being rewarded with what you've done prior to that. Shoot, how about now? I, I mean, I'm convinced back when we did it, it was, it, you know, how it is. They have the cameras down in front of you. 
and there's no cage. And that was the big deal for me is that, you know, you're not used to hitting batting practice without a cage. Around. I swear these, these guys today, they, they practice at length before they go to the home run derby because these guys are too good. And what's amazing to me is that the guys throwing BP, I mean, that's where the pressure is. You know, if you have as many swings as you can get in a certain time frame, you better have a guy throwing BP that can throw strikes. And these guys, more times than not, they're money. I mean, it's impressive to watch the BP get throwers. Yeah, I, like you said, I think that uh, because they bring their own guys in that they get, you know, a little bit of time to work together so that they can get a feel or a sense, maybe a format of how we want to do this. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I can see, you know, the pressure being on those guys. But I think they're close enough to know that, hey, I got to put it in the vicinity of where I think he – really wants it and the left will be uh, the rest should be left up to the hitter itself. Like you said, playing at Wrigley, Wrigley field. Uh, I, I loved playing at Wrigley. You know, I, for years I got to do it. Then I was in the American league and we didn't play it. I think my last six, six years, I only got to go to Wrigley once, but it was one of my favorite places. Uh, but man, the one thing I think about being a player there, it's different. A lot of the day games, so it kind of, I don't know if it messes your clock, clock up or do you think it's an advantage or a disadvantage being the home team uh, at Wrigley Field? Well, I, I, don't, I won't say you have an advantage. Uh, you know, when I played, I, I, I enjoyed daytime baseball because to me it was almost like spring training. I think as the opposition, uh, the challenges posed are you got to get your rest. You know, you, you're playing a day game, and Chicago poses a lot of distractions at nighttime. So you don't go and get your rest, and you got to play a day game. It can tell the next day. I've I've seen on many occasions where players have come in and they look like they were playing with hangovers. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but I I um I think. You know, just the fact that we get to, we got to do it uh, on a daily basis. That was before lights were installed, so we played half the games at home. Uh, we were far more used to it than the opposition coming in. But uh, like I say, if you you get your rest, what I tried to do was take a nap right at the end of the game uh, when I got back to you know my apartment. And I wake up uh, about seven o'clock, and I eat dinner, and it made the night seem long. I'll be back in bed at eleven o'clock, but it felt like I had gotten nine hours of sleep, and felt well rested the next day because I took that nap right after the game, and that that was a part of my my routine. But I will say, if you you come in and you think that you know you can uh, probably hit the town for a couple of days that you're there and uh, in a three game series at some point it might take its toll on you. And usually it's maybe not the first day, but the second game. Yeah, I can, I can see how that is. And, and I've talked to people in the past that played, played for the Cubs for years. And they said, guys used to come in, you know, all the wives want to come family members. Cause it's Chicago. They want to go shopping. So they've got all that going on and we're just ready to play a game. So certain, <laughs> certain, elements it can be an advantage i know how i'd be if i played at wrigley field because i know that you know how how 
how severe of a difference it was between wind blowing out, wind blowing in. People used to ask me, what's it like? I said, well, if the wind's blowing in, you better hit it twice. The wind's blowing <laughs> out. Some days you could pop that thing up. It'll go up 10 rows. But I know myself, mm-hmm. I know the first thing I'd do when I woke up in the morning is I'd have some sort of tell, something that I could tell whether it was blowing in or blowing out. Did you have anything like that that you would check first thing in the morning? Like, all right, which way is it blowing? Well, all I had to do was look out the window and it would tell me. <laughs> I could tell by <laughs> how the trees were blowing. But of course, you know, guys, you get to the ballpark and the first thing you do, you look up at the flags and uh, that's pretty much an indication of how the day is going to be. Very rarely does it change uh, unless there's going to be uh, some kind of storm or something coming through. But, you know, that that would hurt you uh, as much as it would help you, I would say, the wind blowing in as opposed to it blowing out. Because early in the season, uh, when it was damp, when it was cold, uh, it blew in. And now you have the elements of the cold and the wind that you got to try to attack. And that's why I really say it, it probably helps you as much as it, it, it uh, hurts you as much as it helped you uh, over um, 80-something game season. Man, looking at those rosters, a lot of ex-teammates of mine on there. You had J- a young Jamie Moyer on that, on that team, Sutcliffe. You had a young Maddox. I was Maddox before his, he was he was Maddox. Uh, Paul Merrill was on that team. And, wow, there's a lot of guys. Your Cub years, you're an all-star every year uh, until 92. So you're an all-star five years in a row, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91. Um, talk about Don Zimmer a little bit. My favorite manager of all time. And Don, he didn't really have a lot of rules. He just, you know, wanted you to respect the uniform and just play to the best of your ability. Don't go out and uh, don't be disrespectful to the fans. And that was that was simply it. He said, you come through those two double doors, you know, I just want you to give your best effort day in and day out. We very rarely had meetings. And uh, he just allowed you to, to go out and play the game. And what I liked most about him was he was the guy, he would always tell me three days ahead of time, four days ahead of time, what day he was going to give me off. And I'd know ahead of time. Uh, he actually let me manage a game. Uh, we were in Philadelphia, and I, as I was getting off the bus, uh, going down to the clubhouse, I went. I, I walked past uh, the lineup card, and I wasn't in the lineup, and he, I re- didn't recall him telling me I wasn't going to play. So uh, by the time I get to my locker, he comes out, and he says, uh, he says, today, he says, I got good news for you, and I got bad news. I said, okay. I said, um, uh, I already know uh, the bad news. I'm not playing. And he starts smiling. He said, you got that right. He said, the good news is you're going to manage the game. And I looked at him kind of in disbelief. And I said, I'm going to manage the game. He said, yeah. He said, so hurry up and get dressed uh, and go in and, you know, sit at my desk because the press will be here in 15 minutes. (laughs) Oh, well. Oh, well. I really didn't have much to do. Uh, You know, the game is going along fine. I'm sitting on the bench sitting next to Zim. 
and we get to probably I think about the eighth inning, and we're winning the game. And he looks at me and he says, <clears throat> he makes that grunt. And I didn't, I didn't really glance at him. I, I you know, you, have, you know, you can feel someone looking at you out of, out of the corner of your eyes. And I didn't say anything. And he did it again. And he said, um, are you going to get Mitch up? Mitch Williams was our closer. And Mitch was notorious for being the wild thing. And I said uh, to them, I said, well, I said, we got the um, the bottom of the eighth and uh, the the Phillies had two left-handers coming up. And I had left-hander Paul Ossenmacher in the bullpen. And he came in, he pitched the bottom of the eighth inning. So we get to the top of the ninth and he does it again. He says, are you going to get Mitch up? So I finally looked over at him and I said, I said, Jim, I said, you gave me the day off. I'm going to give Mitch the night off. I said, I'm not going to let him come in here and blow my W. And he looked at me in disbelief and he said, oh, okay. He scratched his head. He said, no problem. He said, just when the media uh, confronts you about it at the end of the game, he said, you just, you, you better have the right answer for him. I said, oh, I'll let them know too. Uh, if I blow this game, that's one thing. I said, but I'm not going to let Mitch come in and blow it. <laughs> he got he got a chuckle out of that. Uh, but he was great. He was great. I, um, I uh, you know, get asked that all the time. Uh, for for me, he's all, always probably uh, definitely uh, my favorite. 1992, uh, you hit your 400th home run. You had a pretty darn good year. You weren't an all-star that year, but you hit 22 and drove in 90. Special hitting your 400th homer? Yeah, I uh, I wanted to get it in the National League. Uh, it didn't happen in the, in the um, National League. I, I hit my 400th National League home run when I left Boston and went back. Uh, to the National League and played for the Marlins. But number 400, I uh, hit it in Boston over the Green Monsters. It's funny because the first couple of weeks, it's like the Green Monster was like it was right there in front of you. And I must have hit it about, about six or seven times and just couldn't get the ball over it. And I said, wow. And I hit it and I only get a single. And I said, I crushed that ball and I only got a single out of it. But finally, I hit number 400 off of Jose Mesa. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was, it was fulfilling, but it was uh, even more exciting to uh, play again back in Veterans Stadium and hit number 400 uh, of my National League career. From from Chicago, you move on to Boston. You spent two years there. So you're kind of going, you're going from Wrigley to, Wrigley to Fenway. Uh, two of probably the most iconic venues still left in the game. Did you enjoy your time in Boston? I really did. I felt Fenway and, and Wrigley, uh, two of the older ballparks, uh, and, and that still existed, had just different, unique, and intricate angles about it. And uh, Boston in particular, you know, they had the huge fan following and the only thing I, I didn't like was the American League. I thought the games were too long, especially when we played the Yankees 
and the cities were a little bit different uh, from those in the National League. But I, I really enjoyed Boston. Uh, I was only there for for two years. I got the opportunity to play uh, with some some fun and exciting ball players. I was a teammate of Roger Clemens. Uh, Movon had a uh, phenomenal breakout year, uh, and I just I, I did I enjoyed that aspect of playing in the American League, but. Uh, you know, the rest of it, uh, you know, I, I could care less about. In the final two years of your career, you mentioned you played in uh, for the Marlins. And I'm, I'm assuming what went into that, you wanted to fit it, you wanted to kind of finish your career at home. Is that went into it? I'm just assuming, but that was the last two years where you wound it down. Well, actually, I contemplated retiring, uh, walking away, you know, finally giving it up. And again, it was a strike season and I got a telephone call. I, I negotiated first. Let me back up for a second. I negotiated first with, uh, uh Cleveland, uh, about possibly paying another year or two. They wanted a DH. Uh, Dave Winfield was a free agent at the time and they wanted to know if I would be interested in coming in, uh, and being the, the, the free agent. Uh, signing and DH uh, to fill that void. And I I knew that, you know, there were some milestones that were within reach. And I said it would be, you know, exciting if I could reach those. And I agreed to uh, take on um, uh, a contract. And then I got a call back uh, after agreeing that they were going to sign Winfield or they had agreed with Winfield. So I didn't entertain that any further, and I went home uh, that offseason. I got a call from Dave Dombrowski, who was the general manager of uh, the Florida Marlins at the time, and he wanted he wanted a veteran presence in a young clubhouse and a guy that could come in and be maybe a fourth outfielder. And I kind of mulled it over. I talked to my wife about it, and she said, well, you know, you'll be at home. And I knew I would be sleeping in my own bed. I'd be around family uh, for the most part. And it was an opportunity for uh, a lot of hometown folks, friends, family to come out and watch watch me when I was in the lineup. So I think the fact that I I knew I you know didn't have to worry about going out playing every day, uh, I did entertain it. And at the end of that, uh, I got a call from Dombrowski. He wanted me to come back again. And I I said, well, I, I really didn't know if I wanted to do that. Finally, I convinced myself, look, I'm at home. Uh, it's very easy what it is I'm doing. So I went back a, a second year, and I had knee surgery uh, very early in the season, uh, my last knee surgery in professional baseball. That was the one that finally did me, and I was on the disabled list until uh, the rosters were expanded in September. And uh, I made it known uh, throughout the organization in the front office that I was going to retire at the end of the year. And we had a press conference uh, a couple of months before uh, the season ended, and I announced announced that it was going to be my last year. So that, you know, was. Um, that was just to sum it up, uh, my stint of playing at home. It wasn't wasn't eventful, some fun at times, but it just, you know, gave me the opportunity 
uh, to help uh, some of the young players uh, develop again at that level and uh, be inspirational and try and motivate them. In 21 years, hell of a career. Uh, you had 438 homers, 1,591. And with all the knee surgeries, you still found a way to steal 314 bases. That's the most impressive out of all of it for me. Um, you went to the front office with the Marlins. Uh, what was your role uh, shortly thereafter you retired? I was a special assistant uh, to President uh, Dave Dombrowski. And what that entailed was I'd get dressed in uniform, spring training, all the home games. I could travel with the team on the road if I elected to. I would go to the minor leagues, visit all of the affiliates, uh, dress out, uh, kind of sit back and evaluate uh, the talent out at the minor league level and uh, do some community-related uh, events for them, a lot of it at the ballpark itself. So very, uh, very low-key. I enjoyed that as much. I, I was asked if I had any aspirations to manage, and I knew I didn't want to put the uniform on uh, full-time. I felt comfortable doing what it was I was doing. I didn't like, you know, the, uh, the, the late hours getting in from traveling wherever you were. So I, I was very, uh, very satisfied with what it was I was doing. And I spent all of, what, 15 years with the Marlins. You want to ring with the Marlins uh, as an executive. And the only comparison I have is, is dad won a World Series in 1980, you know, as a player. And he worked with the Washington Nationals for about, I think it was 12 or 13 years. And few years back when they won the World Series, I think it was 2019, I remember them getting to the World Series, and they were the underdog, and they ended up winning. And I remember watching my dad and the emotions that he went through. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I got to go to World Series. I never won one as a player. But I, I would have to imagine being a player, there's nothing that could really replace that. But I looked at, at his eyes when they won, and it's almost like he was just as proud as that. You know, and he kind of looked at me and said, Brett, that's a lot of hard work behind the scenes for years. And I'm so happy. You know, I said, is it as cool as winning it as a player? He goes, well, I can't remember that far back, but this is really cool. So I w I'm wondering if, if you had that uh, similar reaction. Was it was it really fulfilling when when you won it as an executive? You know, it was more fulfilling for me. Uh, I, I got two. Uh, World Series rings as an executive, one with the Marlins and one with the Cubs. Uh, and they both were entirely different. Uh, with the Marlins, at the time, Jeffrey Loria had never won anything. At least this is how it came from his wife. He had never won anything in his life. And uh, here's a man who's a multimillionaire. Uh, and he's the owner of a Major League Baseball team. Uh, we we beat a very good New York Yankee team uh, to win that World Series. We first went through the Cubs to win the the, the, the league championship series. Uh, we pulled off uh, two wins that people thought were uh, 
uncharacteristic and just would not happen. We beat, uh, you know, their number one and number two starters. And from there, we just felt that our pitching staff matched up well against the Yankee hitters, which, you know, proved to be the case. And when we won it, it was, you know, it was a different type of jubilation um, because it was South Florida. It was the very first time that it ever happened here. And, uh, you know, it was very exciting. Uh, I was not a member of the Cubs uh, organization uh, when they won it. Uh, and uh, what was it? Ninety six. Uh, they won when they won it, and I can recall, you know, like your dad, I was sitting at home, and I was watching uh, the game. I had gone to Wrigley Field to throw out the first pitch of Game Five, and sitting there watching the game, I had a conversation prior with uh, Manager Joe Madden, and. Uh, he made a comment. He said, we, we just need to get away from home. He said, the team is pressing a little bit. He said, we're going to win tonight, which they did win the game, by the way. He said, we're going to win tonight, and we're going to go on the road, and we're going to win the series. And I thought that was kind of bold because Cleveland was, Cleveland was on a roll. And sure enough, it, it played out that way. I was sitting at home watching game seven, and I had an appearance to do the next day in Wrigley Field if the Cubs won the World Series. If they lost, Kenny Lofton, because he was the next Cleveland player, he was going to do the same appearance in Cleveland. Well, the Cubs won the game. I'm, I'm sitting watching the game, and I had to pike, but I didn't want to pike because I said, no, I don't want to jinx them. I don't want to throw some clothes together and then they lose the game. So I wouldn't pack. And they went in the game in the, in the bottom of uh, the eighth inning. And I say to myself, I said, um, I think I better go and throw this stuff together because I got to leave. Uh, the flight's going to leave at 6 a.m. And as I'm doing it, I come back, the game is tied. And the only thing I could think of is, that, oh, boy, I jinxed him. Right. Yep. So now you, they, go the, back. <laughs> they, they go into the rain delay and I, I'm thinking, I said, boy, this, this can only happen to the Cubs. Right. So they go into the rain delay. Now you got to sit through the rain delay. They resume play. They win the game. And my heart was beating. My heart was racing unimaginable. And I don't know. You know, I had to be just excited as uh, any Cub fan that exists because, you know, they waited, they've waited for so long. And I think every player that probably put that uniform on had to be pulling for the Cubs to get that final out and finally, finally win the World Series. So I'm watching the celebration. I, I didn't really get to bed or I closed my eyes at 3 a.m. And I knew that I had to be up in another hour or so to go out to the to the airport. But uh, that was that was fun. I can I can you know understand what your dad felt. You know how proud he must have been because of you know what it took um, getting to that particular moment. So yeah, I did. I got two as as executives, and you know I'm I'm actually I'm proud of both of them. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, 
Now, I think my timeline's correct on this. Pretty cool thing. 1997, you get the phone call. They're going to retire uh, your number 10 as Expos. There's only four, five, including Jackie, uh, Jackie Robinson, but there's only four Expos numbers that have ever been retired. Carter, uh, Staub, uh, Timmy Raines, and yourself. Pretty special call. Yeah, I, uh, I just, you know, anytime, you know, you, you get a number, uh, retired, I think it reflects on well, what, you know, you did for the organization, the appreciation they show, uh, for the accomplishments, you know, uh, that may have occurred while you was there. Uh, but the hall of fame, you know, when I got the call, I, it was a little bit, bittersweet because it took nine years and for me I wanted it to happen uh, if it was going to happen while my mother and my grandmother was alive Uh, my my grandmother was uh, she was uh, the role model for me growing up I had uncles her sons but it was a little bit different Um, she was like a mentor to me my mom she was like my sister because I was the oldest of all of this, all of my siblings. And, you know, that's kind of the relationship we had. Uh, both of them passed away and they didn't get to see that moment. Uh, so for me, it was a, it was a little bit bittersweet. So I just tried to try to win and putting my hall of fame speech together uh, base it on the impact uh, that they had on me, not only as a kid, but growing up, uh, getting me uh, through the, the challenges of life itself, and just overall what they meant to me. Uh, so, but I did, when I did get the call, it just to me it was. Uh, I look at it like my career now has finally come full circle. I didn't imagine playing the game with that in mind. But I think longevity and maybe consistency is what, you know, got me to that that particular uh, point in in my life, and you know, be, being able to actually get that call. Yeah, it's amazing. I've uh, a lot of guys on the podcast, and you know, a lot of first ballot Hall of Famers, and then recently I had Bert Blylevin and and Jim uh, Jimmy Cott. Cott, you know, it took 35 years for Cott to get in. Uh, Edgar Martinez is a, a dear friend of mine. He he got in on the 10th ballot. And I remember kind of the emotional roller coaster, you know, when it, when the Hall of Fame would roll around and, you know, I'd have my conversations with Edgar. Hey, what do you think this year? I don't know, Booney, maybe, maybe. So I, I could imagine you, you got in on the ninth year, but, you know, that first year it was probably like, all right, is it going to happen? And it didn't. And then finally on the ninth try, uh, it happens, but but uh, it had to be amazing. It had to be amazing and well deserved. What a great what a great career um, you did have. Best piece of advice you ever got? Well, that that's why I say my grandmother was my mentor. She um, she looked at baseball as recreation. Um, she wanted me to pursue my education. She said education was first and foremost. She said, but if you got the talent, the ability uh, to play the game somewhere along the line, someone will notice it and you'll be given an opportunity. But she told me, she says, um, 
you know, as you walk through uh, life day in and day out, she said, don't forget to get on your knees each and every day before you close your eyes and be thankful of your blessings. Uh, be thankful before you even receive them and don't ever let someone tell you that something can't be accomplished. And uh, I just try to take this, you know, with me, with me through life. And to me, she was like my mother. My mother was like my sister, my, but my grandmother was like my mother. And I think the toughest thing I had to do was to close her coffin. And they wanted me to close it uh, myself because that was my way of giving her up. And uh, it was, uh, when you talk about, you know, your body just, just going numb and you feel like you're going to faint. Uh, when I had to go up and I had to do that, uh, I broke down, uh, but I made it, I made it through uh, that particular moment. And I dedicated the year that she passed was 1987. I dedicated that year to her on her, in her behalf. And I didn't, I didn't set any goals really for the first time in my career. And I, what do I do? I go out and win the MVP award. So the best advice I, I got in life was from my grandmother. Awesome. Hall of Famer Andre Dawson. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Andre. Uh, it's been great. Um, what a career and uh, what a story. Pretty cool. As we do each and every Boone podcast, at the end of the podcast, we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. He's probably got a question for you. Dan? Thanks, Booner. Mr. Dawson, I got a question from you, or for you, I should say. And the question is this. Do you consider yourself an ex-cub or an ex-expo? <laughs> oh, Wow. You're going you're gonna to have me to sell out on that one. Uh, I, I enjoyed the 10 years in Montreal, but the six years in Chicago, I wouldn't trade them for anything. Um, I'm a cubby for life. Um, it's just, you know, astronomical to think about uh, how well those uh, fans treated me when I got to Chicago, uh, how they embraced me, how they allowed me to not really walk around uh, and feel my way around, I should say, in the organization, but I felt like a fit from day one. And uh, they, to me, they were just the best fans that I ever played before. And I look at those six years in Chicago, and I'll always cherish those years. And answering your question, I would, I would say Chicago. <laughs> Good to know. Andre Dawson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you guys for having me. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the boon 29 
I'm Dan Levy, BASS On Air. That is Base On Air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.